this podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mixing just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries, ain't Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Polly and their dog Ninja. Hey guys, and welcome to episode 119 of Hibbly Horror Stories. I'm Jerry. Hello, I'm Tracy. We, uh, I want to start off before we get into the story because we've got a lot of stuff to cover tonight, a lot of fun stuff to cover tonight, some sad stuff to cover tonight. Before we get too far into it though, we want to send our prayers out to California. You guys uh, are having a super rough time of it. I mean, between the mass shootings that have happened there recently, and then you've got the fire that have got so many people displaced for their home. Uh, and, you know, I want to say this about the fires. We, we live thousands of miles away, and we see that, and we're not numb to it because you see that, and you're like, oh, my God, that's horrible for those people. But then we start realizing that those people, some of those people, are you guys. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've talked uh, to a few people and we've seen the post in the group. And I had a t- chance to talk to uh, Chelsea Anaya, who is like 15 minutes from Paradise that just burnt down. And, you know, uh, Jamie Facenda and, and her family have been relocated from their home. And I know she was checking yesterday, letting people know that. Her home and her mom's home was still okay, but I can't imagine being in a situation where, you know, it's like I was telling somebody else earlier, you know, we have like tornadoes here Mm -hmm. and it comes, it goes, it's done. I mean, the threat of the tornado might be a couple hours and something like this though, that just goes and goes and goes and lasts for days and weeks and you just have to wait it out. I just can't fathom that. I no, mean, it's really sad. But we just want to let you guys know that that we're thinking of you, and we love you, and we just want you to be safe. And um, if there's anything we could do on our end, I can't imagine how much we could do that would make that big of a difference. But don't be afraid to ask, and yes, we'll do what we can. Yes, please do. So that's what I just wanted to kind of lead off with because that's it's been on my mind. I told um, Chelsea I kind of thought about it all last night, which I mm-hmm. did. And uh, but it, it hits close to home when we start realizing that people that we associate with on a regular basis are really affected by this, and it yeah. just slaps us into reality. Yeah, sure does. We love you guys. Absolutely. Um, obviously, we want to thank all of our military and civil servants all over the world, no matter who you are in the United States. Uh, Monday is Veterans Day. Yes. So if you see a veteran out there, if you see somebody wearing the hat, if you see somebody that you just know is a veteran, give them a big hug and thank, thank them for uh, allowing us to be able to live in freedom in this country. Amen. All right, deep breath so we can regroup here. Obviously, you, don't, you can let your breath out. Oh. 
good. <laughs> Obviously, in times like this, it's even more urgent to talk about um, the suicide prevention hotline. You know, things get crazy out there. I mean, this, this is a crazy world we're living in right now. And you just have to take a deep breath and just say, I'm going to get through today. Or in some cases, I'm going to get through the next hour. I'm going to get through the next two hours. Mm -hmm. But just always know there's somebody out there in your time of need that's willing to lend a hand, whether you realize it or not. You're never a burden. Don't ever think you're a burden on somebody because that's just your mind playing tricks on you. Yeah. So if you need help, once again, call us. Use the group as a support group. We, we're so proud that that's what that's become to so many people. And uh, we just want you guys to realize that there is help out there, whether it be the suicide hotline, 800-273-8255, or their text line, 741-741, or anybody in the group or anybody that uh, you can email or any friend or family member. Trust me, they're there. We are here for you guys. We love y'all. Okay. Don't try to do this on your own if you can't. Our story tonight and I'm not going to jump right into it, but I want to set it up a little bit. When we went to New Orleans back in August, and now we're looking, what's that, four months ago. No, that's crazy. When we went there, there was one story that really jumped out. And we've done a bunch of stories from New Orleans since then. But this is the one that we said while we were down there, we're definitely doing a story on this. And I purposely waited just because I wanted to put a little extra effort into it. I wanted to get the right... Um, the right angle on it, so to speak, because mm -hmm. this can be tricky. This thing's got so many twists and turns, it's amazing. And we have a fantastic interview to go with it that as we get into the story, I'll tell you about. But it's this one's four months in the making. So we're I'm I'm excited about this one. I'm proud of this one. It is seventy five percent true crime. Mm -hmm. Uh but there's as usual when we do true crime, there's twists and turns that involve creepy, that involve paranormal, that involve hauntings. All that is involved in this one, which is what makes it a fascinating story. I don't want to say it's a great story because when you're talking about tragedy, mm -hmm. it's hard to yeah, say something's sad. great because I don't it's not like we're oh, that was horrible for them guys, but man, it was mm -hmm. good to listen to. Yeah. It just almost sounds bad to do that. Right. So but from strictly from a fascinating standpoint, this is right up there with any of them we've done, I think. And uh, we owe you guys some iTunes and Patreon reviews and stuff that we kind of, you know, I just, <laughs> I just completely neglected to do last week. Sorry, we just totally yeah. forgot. We, I don't know why we forgot. We well, never forget. We that. forgot because I was dying of a toothache. Oh, that's true. And that's I was true. just trying to get through the show, and I just totally lost my focus. So. Yeah, yeah. So now I got your cred. So thanks, babe. You didn't get a toothache though. Don't act. Well, like, don't act like you caught a toothache. From I didn't me. catch a toothache, but I caught your cred. And then uh, I do want to mention we've got a bunch of live shows. We released that, so we'll mention that in the beginning. We released about nine different dates that we're going to do live shows. Yes, we're going to be in Atchison, Kansas uh, with the Sally House back in August. Or uh, not back in, it'll be in August. <laughs> we're going to be in Houston on May 11th. And this is a, a really big deal. This will be the biggest show we've ever done size-wise. And we've got extra special guests. We've got Twisted Philly. We've got The Confessionals and Sasquatch Chronicles. Mm. And that's right. I put the biggest show of the night is a cryptid show. I know most of you out there are thinking, what are you thinking? <laughs> that's not something I would typically do, but 
Man, you know, when uh, when you get opportunities to get those kind of shows on board oh, in a place like Houston that we want to be. I, I promised you guys we were going to do everything we could to make that a great show when we came out. And I think we succeeded. So I'm super excited about it. Tickets are not on sale yet because we're still finalizing the location. As soon as we get that, tickets will be on sale. Now, the tickets are on sale for two shows. And this one I'm excited about, too. In August will be our birthday bash. And we decided, you know, we have zero amount of um, ego, to be honest with you. We don't ever feel like we're better than anybody, and we are never hesitant to take a step down. We've done shows with other groups that were, we might have had a little, you know, little few more downloads or something. But if they were, if we were in their home state or their hometown, we always let them close the show because that's the right thing to do. Well, this is not going to be any different. We are doing a show in our hometown of Lexington, Kentucky for the first time. It will be the three-year birthday of our show, so you would think we would be the ones closing the show. And I don't know if that's going to be the case because we went out of our way to invite Tony Bruski from Real Ghost Stories Online, who inspired our show, and The Grave Talks, and Tony's going to come do that show. He's never done a live event in six years of doing this. And we've talked him and coerced him into driving nine hours to come up to Lexington <laughs> and do our birthday show with us. So yeah, we're excited. How cool is that, 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 that a show that big is going to come up here and do the show with us? So, it's amazing. We're you know, very humbled. Yeah, very humbled, to say the least. Uh, we've also set up another show. And tickets are on for sale for that, by the way. There's only 80 seats available. So um, you might want to snatch those up as quick as you can. And some of them already have. We've already had four tickets sold mm-hmm. since I put it up yesterday. It'd be a great Christmas gift. And then the next one we're going to talk about, and I'll be done with live shows for tonight, Point Pleasant, West Virginia, home of the Mothman. October 5th, tickets are on sale for that. There are only 60 seats available for that one. We've got the guys from Ohio and Diane from History Goes Bump will be there with us. So that'll be cool right there on the verge of Halloween. Mm -hmm. Be great. Awesome. A lot of good stuff to look forward to. A lot sure. of good stuff. Like I said, we've got shows in Gatlinburg that I'll have finalized probably Monday and have on sale. Uh, the Atchison, Kansas deal will be on sale here very soon when we finalize that. Houston will be on sale soon. So you guys will have a lot to look forward to because we are getting out and about. Hey, guys, we've got a new sponsor tonight, and it's a podcast, and you're going to like this one. So if you're a fan of Hillbilly Horror Stories, you probably already enjoy some true crime stories that – Kind of shot a light on the darkest corners of humankind. We all do. Much like the story that we're doing tonight. So lurking in the shadows behind the petty criminals and the amateur thieves are the masterminds of the criminal underworld. In Kingpins, a new podcast from Parcast that I love, they take a deep dive into the minds and the stories of the men and women who call the shots and, and actually rule the crime world. Each episode of Kingpins goes deep inside the ranks of organized crime rings. From street gangs to mafiosos to expose just what it takes to be a kingpin or queenpin to rise to the top of the underworld and why they eventually fall. So using extensive research, Kingpins analyzes a leader of a crime syndicate and profiles the outrageous people and the skewed relationships behind organized crime. So this is it's pretty damn interesting when you think about it. Kingpins will revolve the type of person that's drawn into the world of organized crime and what exactly it takes to ascend within the crime organization and what it takes to bring them down so here's what i need you to do i need you to search kingpins all one word wherever you listen to podcasts again that's k-i-n-g-p-i-n-s or visit 
parcast.com slash kingpins to start listening now. That's parcast, P-A-R-C-A-S-T, dot com slash kingpins to start listening now. <laughs> All right. Let's jump into the story after we've already talked for 10 minutes. It's not really jumping into it. Let's kind of, you know, walk gradually into the story. So, obviously, we were in New Orleans. We learned about a story that was true, first of all, tragic, and it had several different facets that make it a perfect story for our show. This story is predominantly going to be true crime, and it's a very grisly true crime, so we're just going to tell you ahead of time. Uh, there's going to be just some disturbing aspects of it. There's going to be the house where the crime was actually committed. That's haunted. That mm-hmm. fits right in. There's going to be some talk of demons. And to mention that this house where this happened was over top of a, a, a voodoo shop. Yeah. And tabernacle. So, I mean, you can see there's a bunch of different things in here already. So there are talks of demons that were possibly involved in this crime and we'll discuss whether that may or may not be the case. There's also a uh, a military veteran yep. and a suicide that caps off an 11-day event. So you could see there are so many different things that we normally talk about. And I thought it would be just the perfect story to, to tell to fit all those in. So on top of all that, the house where this crime actually happened is now a haunted museum. It's uh, ran by the infamous voodoo priestess of New Orleans, Bloody Mary. And we have an interview with her in a little bit. I thought it would be important to bring her on. Tracy and I, when we were down there, we got to visit with her. We went through this entire house. Mm-hmm. Um, and we got to sit and talk to Bloody Mary for a while. And she agreed to do this. And it's taken a couple months to really get it all right, worked out. Right. And she's time. very busy. Very busy. Book tours. And mm-hmm. she's been on... BuzzFeed and Ghost Adventure several times. So after we hear our interview with Bloody Mary, we're going to tell you another story about a separate murder that has a very eerie connection to the crime we're getting ready to talk about. So how does all that sound for a setup? So without further ado, this is the tragic story of Zach Bowen and Addie Hall. So let's start with some background. Most who knew Zach Bowen said that he was a decent person. They said there was nothing about him that made people nervous or uh, like they needed to be on guard or anything like that. Mm -hmm. He was a decent looking man, cute but fairly average by most people's accounts. He was just a good old American boy, had plenty of friends, was very sociable. There were no signs at all of what may have been hiding beneath the surface that obviously transpired the last years of his life. When Zach was 18 years old, he met an exotic dancer by the name of Lana Shapak. They eventually got married, and uh, later on, Zach joined the military to support Lana and the two children that they had created by this marriage. He rose to the rank of sergeant in the U.S. Army while he was on a tour overseas in Kosovo and Iraq. Mm. So he definitely seen his share of stuff. Yeah. One of his friends told a, a biographer that Zach seemed to change when he was overseas. He said he wasn't happy at all. He wanted to come home. And Jack got his wish when he received a general discharge. Now, because this was a less than honorable uh, condition of, of leaving the military, he was a little disappointed. And I guess we could say bitter because he felt like that he should have been out on an honorable discharge. He had a great recommendation by his commanding officer, and uh, 
Zach had a bunch of medals. He had the NATO medal and the presidential citation. So you could see why he might be a little bit upset on the way he left. So anyway, he comes to New Orleans, and he became a bartender in the French Quarter at this bar called Buffus. Mm -hmm. Shortly after his return, Zach and his wife divorced. This left Zach single in a city full of available women. Now, Zach eventually set his sights on another bartender, Adrian Addy Hall. Addy was also a bartender in the French Quarter at a place called the Spotted Cat, which is a pretty well-known bar down there. Addy had moved to New Orleans from North Carolina. Now, aside from her temper being very hot, most of her friends knew very little about her. So she took a liking to Zach, and the two would actually visit each other at work on a regular basis. They'd kind of sit and kind of send love notes back and forth yeah. across the bar to each other and a flirt, you know, from the opposite sides of the bar, mm-hmm. depending on which one was working right? as which one was behind the bar. Then Hurricane Katrina hit. The city of New Orleans was pounded. Addie offered Zach some shelter in her apartment that was on Governor Nichols Street. They were determined to stay in New Orleans and ride the storm out no matter what. Even mm-hmm. though everybody was being evacuated, they were like, we're going to stick it out. So they gained local notoriety for refusing to leave the French Quarter after the storm. They became kind of folk heroes. They were on the news. They were on mm-hmm. different publications. So when the electricity went out, they kind of, you know, fashioned their own makeshift stove. Yeah. And made it their own. They would barter with other holdouts for necessities. I mean, it was literally like back in the pioneer days or yeah, something for right. a while. They even put their bartending sc- uh, skills to use, and they were serving up drinks for all the weary locals that happened to hang around. So Addie actually went above and beyond to help make sure that their part of the neighborhood was getting a little extra security, if you know what I mean. She would flash her breast to passing policemen, who for some odd reason then increased security in their area. (laughs) (laughs) Zach and Addie weren't just surviving Katrina's aftermath. They were thriving in it. And that may have been the problem in the long run. Isn't that crazy? Addie told a reporter... We've been able to see stars for the first time. Because before this, New Orleans was a 24-hour lit city. Now it's actually peaceful. Mm. And you know that place, after the, when the electricity went out, and all, it was literally like a ghost town. You took one of the most busy places in the entire world. And for a while, there was nothing going on. Oh, I can't even imagine. It was hard to get to. It was hard to get out of. Yeah. There was, most places were closed down or they were badly damaged. Mm. And so, I mean, you could you figure all the flooding and stuff that oh, went on? God, now, the French yeah. Quarter, as we found out, wasn't really hit that hard by the flooding and stuff like that. But you had people trying to loot. So, I mean, it was it was crazy down there. So, eventually, New Orleans, though, they began to get back to normal. But it wasn't too long after that that their friends began to notice that there was a change in the couple. They were fighting constantly. They were drinking heavily. And they would also start to kind of disappear from their jobs, sometimes days at a time. Oh, they just didn't show up? Just didn't show up. So we talked about Addie's temper. And uh, one night, she got into a heated argument in the early morning hours. And she actually pulled a gun on a man that was just... Walking around the French Quarter. Oh, like a random dude. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't know what they were arguing about, but she started screaming in his face and eventually was arrested. Yeah, well, hello. <laughs> Soon after that, Zach was arrested for possession of marijuana. Well, that's stupid. Yeah, I agree. Especially when they had those weed trucks down there. The, I know. Mm-hmm. I mean, that crap was everywhere. <laughs> but this was 
you know, 2006. So this was a little, oh, little oh, bit. Oh, okay. Ago, well, that's 12 years ago. Yeah. So by the end of September 2006, the two had been evicted from the apartment on Governor, Governor Nichols. They moved to 826 North Rampart Street. Now, this address on 826 North Rampart Street was an apartment, and it was above the New Orleans Voodoo Spiritual Temple. Now, at first, things seemed normal, but by October 5th, Addie had visited the landlord and requested to have Zach thrown out. She apparently had discovered, according to the landlord, that he had been cheating on her. By this point, the fighting that they had had reached a peak. Addie had permanently disappeared from her job at the Spotted Cat, mm-hmm. so she wasn't even going into work at all anymore. Drugs and alcohol, alcohol only added to the constant bickering that they had. On October 5th, 2006, the same day she talked to the landlord, Addie Hall accused Zach of being unfaithful. What would happen next was completely unexpected. So let's fast forward a little bit to October 16th, 2006. Zach had been out drinking with a friend. He was in pretty good spirits, and he actually talked about a much-needed vacation to his friend. He even talked about the next night being in paradise. Well, October 17th, the next night, was anything but paradise for Zach. 8.30 p.m., a guest at the Omni Royal Orleans Hotel who was just kind of sitting in an upper upper level lounge, noticed that there was a body of a man on top of the roof parking deck. What? He was on top of the roof doing what? He was on the roof parking deck. Oh, parking deck. Okay. Yeah. Zach Bowen had jumped to his death from the rooftop terrace. Oh, gosh. Surveillance footage shows that him walking back and forth several times to the ledge before finally jumping. So the guy saw him jump off? No, he just saw the body. Oh. And then he went back and looked at surveillance camera and saw. Oh, my gosh. His mangled body was covered in cigarette burns. In his pocket was a suicide note that was wrapped in a plastic bag. I'm going to read some of the suicide note. It said, this is not accidental. I had to take my own life to pay for the one that I took. If you send a patrol car to 826 North Rampart, you will find the dismembered corpse of my girlfriend, Addie, in the oven on the stove, and in the fridge, and a full-signed confession from myself, oh, Zach Bowen. I oh. scared myself by not the action of calmly strangling the woman I've loved for one and a half years and then desecrating her body, but by the entire lack of remorse. I've known forever how horrible of a person I am, ask anyone. And I decided to quit my jobs and spend the $1,500 cash I had being happy until I killed myself. So that's what I did. Good food, good drugs, good strippers, good friends, and any loose ends that I may have had. I didn't contact any of my family, so that'll explain the shock. And I had a fantastic time living out my final days. It's just about that time now. Oh, wow. Wonder how he got the cigarette burns, all that stuff. Well, it's interesting. He said... There was 28 cigarette burns on his body. 28? 28. And he said that he had failed miserably in every aspect of life. And he was 28 years old. There was one for each year that he was a failure. That's where the cigarette burns came from. So the police arrive at the apartment on Rampart Street. And they walked into a scene that was straight out of a horror movie. Spray painted on the walls was some of Zach's last words. 
Please tell my wife I love her. I'm a total failure. Look in the oven. Please help me stop the pain. There was also some stuff that they found written in journals. For example, he wrote, this was an Addie's journal, but he had written in it on himself. He said, today is October 16th, 2006. I killed her at 1 a.m. Thursday, the 5th of October. I very calmly strangled her. It was very quick. So, the police walk in. They see all the spray paint and stuff on the wall. Addie Hall's head was in a pot on the stove, and her hands and feet were in another pot. There were chopped vegetables in a container that was sitting on top of the stove. They was not in with the pots. They were just sitting there. There was a basting pan inside the oven that contained her arms and her legs. One had been sprinkled, sprinkled with some type of seasoning. Oh, my Lord. Zach's suicide note said that after the uh, strangling her, he immediately had sex with her corpse <gasps> until he passed out on the sofa next to Addie's body. Police in the um, press conference, though, when this was brought up, adamantly denied that there was any sexual relations. So possibly there wasn't, but this is still what he wrote. So the following day, he moved her body to the bathroom, to the bathtub, and he began to dismember her with a handsaw and a knife. Oh, God. Police, police said he tried to clean up the bathroom. It took Zach four days to decide how to dispose of Addie's chopped up remains. His plan was to, according to him, what he wrote, was to cook the meat till the meat separated from the bone. I guess that was his, going to be his way of disposing of it. He set the oven on 60 degrees and went on with his normal daily routines. 60 degrees? Well, he's cooking low. No, I didn't, what? It's cooking it on a low temperature, babe. He set Ugh. the oven on 60 degrees. This is so horrific. Her torso was in a large bag inside the refrigerator. Now, because of the vegetables that were on the stove and the seasoning, some suggested that Zach had eaten uh, some of the remains. Oh, my God, he ate her? That's not what I said. Oh. I said some suggested that Zach had eaten some of the remains. Some papers called him the Katrina cannibal. In an autopsy on Zach, no human remains were found in his stomach. Okay, I'm going to say this. And it could be a touchy subject, but I'm just going to be perfectly clear. I'm not saying he did eat her or he didn't eat her, period. What I am going to say, though, is I do have some questions. And it's based on some other um, research that I found. For example, yes, he didn't have any remains in his stomach. Mm -hmm. But keep in mind, his suicide was 11 days after he killed her. Yes. Is it not possible that he could have eaten something ten, eight days before, seven days before, six days? I mean, it wouldn't. Maybe I, I mean, maybe I just don't know the answer to this. But I mean, you wouldn't if you ate something six days before. There wouldn't be any evidence of that in your stomach. You would have went to the restroom and all stuff. It would only be in your stomach if it was the last day or two before, right? 
I don't know that. Don't they say red meat stays in your system, system stomach, for a long though. time? I mean, well, I mean that's true. They could just be talking about the stomach and intestines and everything. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I, I just think 11 days out is almost two weeks. Yeah. It would be hard to tell if somebody did or didn't, especially if it was a small amount. Oh, and, and here's why I question at least being able to say for sure he didn't. Because he may not have. But I'm just saying, first of all, he cooked her. That's that's an issue right off the bat. Oh God, yes. Second of all, there there was seasoning on one of them. Third of all, there were vegetables up on the stove. Even if you didn't, it sure seemed like you were going to. But here's the part that makes me at least semi-question it. I saw a statement by uh, someone who said that they saw crime scene photos. And this mm-hmm. was a, a legitimate source that was talking to a guy that was writing a book. When they said they'd seen the crime scene photos, and the person that saw the picture said that there was one picture of her legs sitting on the table in the pan. And he said that it definitely was not charred, so it wasn't like it was left in the oven to the point where it was just burnt. Just burnt, yeah. It was cooked. Oh, my God. That poor girl. But he also said that it looked like some of the leg had been picked over like you would do with a ham, revealing some of the underlying bone. Ugh. So if that's true, and I don't know that it's true, if that's true... I think it's very possible he could have. Because, you know, there's a thing. There's a lot of these, um, like the Jeffrey Dahmers and and, uh, Albert Fish and all that. There's a thing where it's almost like they'll eat their victim just because they're pissed at them. It's just like a way of, I'll show you or or something. It's just an aggravated, like an aggravated cannibalism. Mm. So there are people who do that. So So anyway, so let's get off of that. Please do. What do we think happened here at what's been known since the years of this as the Rampart Murder House? Most of Zach's friends believe that he suffered from PTSD from his time in the military. It was never diagnosed, though. He never went Mm -hmm. to a doctor about it. This is just what they believe. He had mentioned to some of his friends about a horrific event that happened to a child that he just couldn't get out of his mind. So, oh, like why is it while war? he was while he was over there at, oh. at you know in Iraq there were some that wondered mm-hmm. if there was a supernatural force involved some went as far as to say that Zach was possessed by an entity who resided at the voodoo temple directly below their apartment this in my opinion would be very unlikely mainly because the priestess uh, Miriam Chaman, who ran the voodoo place, was very well respected. And it would be highly unlikely that an entity like that would even be allowed in her sanctuary. Yeah. That's what they do is keep away evil spirits. Mm-hmm. So there are evil spirits all around New Orleans. And you'll hear a little bit about that when we do our interview with Bloody Mary. But she feels the same as I do that it probably was nothing that came from the voodoo. But as she says... In the interview, people see voodoo, they think what they think, and then they just ran with, hey, there must be a connection. So those who live in and near the Rampart Street murder house have reported all kinds of ghostly activity, including the feeling of unseen eyes watching, phantom whispers from disembodied voices. The big one's an overwhelming sense of dark, oppressive force that just kind of bears down on you. And most people seem to think that the feeling comes straight from the building itself, which is unusual. 
because usually you got to be inside the building instead mm-hmm. of it kind of reaching out on you, which seems to be what people are thinking. In February of 2016, the Voodoo Temple relocated after extensive damage was done due to an electrical fire. Buddy Mary has since remodeled and opened her haunted museum there. So I thought now would probably be a good time to talk to Bloody Mary. So just hang tight real quick, and I think you guys are really going to enjoy this because she's going to talk about all the paranormal activity that's happens in the house. Mm-hmm. And trust me, she's there all the time, oh, so yeah. she will know. And a few surprises. Don't forget, we still have a story that I said was eerily connected and a murder that's eerily connected to what we just told you, and we're going to tell you about that right after the interview. All right, guys, I got a special treat for you. I'm joined on the phone by Voodoo Queen Bloody Mary. She's the curator of the Haunted Museum in um, uh, New Orleans. And, man, that place is phenomenal. Bloody Mary, thank you so much for coming on with me today. This this show would not be the same today without your input, so I greatly appreciate this. Oh, well, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I wanted to talk a little bit, obviously, about how how I come to know who you were. Uh, just so we, you would have a little background on us. So we, we had a chance to talk when we were in New Orleans a couple months ago. It was fantastic. And, and I was telling you off air, we had a group of four, five, six of us. And uh, they were like, hey, we're going to take this tour of, of Bloody Mary's museum. And nobody was really completely sure right off the bat. But it, and it, I told you it was like Will Ferrell and Elf when they mentioned Santa Claus. I was like, Bloody Mary? I know exactly who she is. <laughs> And so I was excited, and and it really became my favorite part of the whole trip. And the reason I knew who you were, just so you'll know, we haven't talked about this yet, I had open-heart surgery a little over two years ago, and we had just started the show. I wanted to do an episode on Marie Laveau. Now, right after you had heart surgery, it's very uncomfortable to try to sleep. So I literally was getting no sleep, staying up all night. I was by myself. So I didn't really feel like reading up on this, so I was watching YouTube videos. And there was a uh, a show on called Night Fright. And to be honest with you, I saw the name. It said Night Fright, and it, it mentioned, you know, Bloody Mary, uh, Voodoo Queen of New Orleans. And it was talked about Marie Laveau. And I thought, well, I'll check this out. And I'll be honest with you, I had a complete ignorance of voodoo at this point in my life, a couple of years ago. I knew what a lot of people think they know. Oh, it's voodoo dolls and it's hexes and curses and poking needles and causing people pain. And that was my image of voodoo at the time. So I turn on this video. And I've learned so much in the last couple of years. But I turn on this video and the last thing I expected to see was a white woman with blonde hair as the voodoo queen of New Orleans. And I was like, well, now it's got my attention. And then the more you talked and the more you talked about Marie Laveau and your book had just come out. We're going to talk about your book. Your book had just come out when this uh, interview was done shortly before. And I found you completely fascinating. Uh, and then I just started looking up everything I could that had you in it from everything from ghost adventures to uh, the guys from Buzzfeed who I absolutely love. And so, yeah, I was, you, you were a star to me before, your name got mentioned down there, so that that did become the biggest treat, and I just want to thank you for the education that you gave oh, me on Marie you Laveau. You are welcome, and Marie Laveau is quite a healer, too, so hopefully opening up to that, you were able to sleep better. <laughs> <laughs> I did, 
And you, you, we talked oh, about no. the teaching side of this. You you actually do teaching at the colleges and everything around there, right? As far as uh... I do lectures, I do some classes, I do workshops, teaching, field trips uh, to the academics as well as the students, and you know, in in many different sectors, um, I try to especially teach from the aspect of the New Orleans viewpoint how much it's all ingrained in our society and culture, not only voodoo, but the whole spirit world, because the spirit world is very important in voodoo. There's God, there's the intermediary spirits, angels or saints, and there's the ancestors whose wisdom and knowledge and protection is is vital to the survival of a current uh, living in the area. So you have a, a respect for the dead, Le Mort in, in voodoo, and that sit well with me, not to be afraid of it, but to embrace it and to connect. So being that it, my family's been here 300 years, so I'm very ingrained in the culture and of this town. So I used to joke that I was related to half the ghost, but as time went on, I kind of found out I was. <laughs> so you've got uh, the spirit world ever present and understood and communicating in voodoo, and that's what made the most sense to me. And Marie Laveau, speaking of her, she is one of my spirit guides, as well as I am voodoo queen in the tradition of Marie Laveau, New Orleans voodoo. And I'm also Mambo Asagwe and Haitian voodoo, which are kind of sister religions. I think I need to hold the history and the religion of New Orleans voodoo down as part of my life purpose, you know, to under, to explain and understand help people understand New Orleans better. Yeah, I think there definitely is some misconception out there of, of uh, the city of New Orleans and uh, and the voodoo aspects of it. And like I said, we I learned so much from the videos that you did. And then on our trip, we learned a lot more. Uh, I mean, it just, I, I, had a, I have a completely different outlook of voodoo than what I did two years ago. I mean, it's just amazing, the, the, just the concept. Because, you know, I'd seen movies and stuff like that, and that's pretty much all I really had to go on was Hollywood. Well, that's everybody. That's what most everybody has to do. But, yeah, it's part of the culture here. So you're no different than anyone else. It's not a bad thing. It just has easily twisted back to the way that it should be. Now, there's good priests and bad priests in every single religion that is out there, but it's not the religion that teaches, you know, the, the bad the darker parts, let's say. But, of course, the world is filled with that, and that's where the Hollywood would take it and run with it, because it sells better. And the same thing with, by the way, the building that my haunted museum is in. It has 200 years of life and death, but there is a modern 12-year-old, what I call blood print, on the building, a stain, a darker story that's there. That is known by some and not by others. I don't focus on that because I want people to feel it raw without being told what to feel. But the story there, they had a few people that were trying to twist it to have something to do with voodoo, which it had nothing to do with. So the story basically is about a Katrina murder-suicide. It's love gone wrong at a bad time in town. But because the Buddhist spiritual temple was on the lower floor, the people that moved upstairs, there was a couple of media people that wanted to say it was a voodoo thing. Now, none of the voodoo people in town 
would be on that show. They were all asked because, you know, it had many more things going on than voodoo. And Priestess Miriam's voodoo spiritual temple was far from anything dark. And it had nothing to do with that. But the media saw the word voodoo and they could run with it, you know? And so they took a couple of things about construed them, made them the headlines. Even the title of the show was called Katrina Cannibal when the murder-suicide was not a cannibalistic act. It was sad. It was horrific in many things. But he didn't eat her. So I don't know if I'm jumping ahead of the questions you wanted to ask, <laughs> but I thought I'd just say that that voodoo, you know, just the word voodoo, you, know, you can take it and you can inspire evil and darkness, and that's what the media wanted to do. No, you're you're actually right on point because that leads me right into what uh, I really wanted to speak about on here. Obviously, I wanted you to have your say on on voodoo and and especially on that part with the uh, the Zach and and Addie case. But the reality of it is that is the house where this horrific crime oh, happened absolutely. is where your haunted museum is. Absolutely, it's not the Zach and Addie museum. No. Um, but it's certainly an important story to the history of New Orleans, the history of the history of Katrina. And it's they're important spirits in the house. They are not the only spirits in the house, but I you know, they are very, very important and we hope to be working with their spirits and they have grown quite a lot in the last two years that I've been there and I am a person that helps the spirits on the other side as well as humans to deal with spirits and to teach you how to connect. And I believe there's growth for the spirit, for the soul, in the in-between times, you know? And, and they needed some help. And they called me. I had no intention of taking my life savings and redoing a building that had burnt that I didn't own. But it was kind of a calling. Uh, I was called there or pushed there two reasons. One was I had accidentally encountered the spirit of the Black Dahlia in California a week or two before I got the place. And she had kind of followed me from her gravesite in Oakland and was pushing me towards moving more with murdered women, attacked women whose spirits were still a little trapped on the other side. This followed me through Canada, through California, and all the way back to New Orleans but I walked right up to that door and ended up getting the place, which, as I said, I was not necessarily looking to invest all this energy and money into another building. But I knew the story from the moment of Katrina because that is a time that I was battling the dark side here extraordinaire. I mean, there was such a horror hovering over New Orleans and attacking people left and right that all I did for three full years after Katrina was banishing an exorcism on people, places, and things. There was not a darkness emanating from the building that I'm in. It was all around New Orleans, everywhere. And this was not a demon in a Christian, biblical type of sense. This was not a demon. This was not a ghost in the paranormal sense. This is much more of a primordial entity, devouring, hovering, a, a bottom feeder that was going around and just kind of getting on people. And when people are depressed and when people are angry, and when fear is all around them, like the time after Katrina, that's an easy time for something to get in. And it did get into a little bit of Zach and Addie, and they brought it with them. They were 
only in my building, I think, three days before the incident occurred. Let me ask you this, because you just touched on something that we were able to talk about in depth uh, when we were standing outside of your place. You feel like that something to do with, at the time of Hurricane Katrina, kind of brought all this darkness in. Is it? Did I understand that correct? Yes and no. New Orleans has a dark side. Every place has a dark side. But I believe we have way less ghosts than we did before Katrina. And at that point, we're a ghost town of a different type. We were flatlined. You need the people that built the town, the ancestors, the allies, the watchers, if you will, as part of your spirit of place. When they were gone, the dark side ran free without any checks and balances. So much of it might have been there, but always balanced with the other. But when it was alone and there was nothing but people in fear and anger, you know, all around and thieves and crime up, it, it had food and it came and got it. It makes sense. It makes sense. They're just like they're just preying on the people who were the most desperate, which is kind of like vultures. Yeah. Or like, you know, when they're when there's a pack, a herd running through, it's always the weak one that gets pulled off. Right. right. First, because it's easiest. But when the entire herd is weak, you know, that's going to bring a lot of vultures around. So let's and talk- that was what people were weak. Let's talk a little bit about the museum. You have. Sure. Man, an assortment of pictures on the wall. You've got a seance room set up to the spiritualist movement. Uh, the entire upstairs, which was where uh, Zach and Addie's apartment is, is still, I mean, the kitchen is, is still intact with the, are those, are the? I was told, uh, I believe by somebody yeah. else, but I don't know if I heard it from you. Are, is, are yeah. those the actual appliances that were? Yeah, everything is original except for the ceilings, which they had, which we had to replace. Not even in the kitchen. The kitchen was original ceiling, original walls, original everything, and appliances. Yeah, they came with the place. However, I've I've gotten grief for that. I have not. I, I have not put the gas back on. I have not plugged in the refrigerator. I do not use them. They came with the apartment, as they had for ten years of tenants who were up there cooking in that oven and using that fridge. They were not even told when they moved in, but they soon all found out. But they still worked. Uh, that's what I was told, and they came with flight. And, of course, the bathtub and everything else is the same. The front room, which was probably the bedroom back in the day, was is the doll room, the haunted doll room, and the children's spirit room. They stay more up there. But the kitchen and the living room are probably more frequented by Zach and Addie than the other ghosts. So we have about ten different ghosts in there. However, they are, of course, the most known, the most famous, and the ones that need the most help. They reach out and grab people, literally. Uh, so people are touched. People hear them. People see their shadows, see the movement. Um, but they get touched quite a lot. And Addie, she, she has, for the past two years, jumped in someone once every couple of weeks. Someone young, someone that usually has had a drink or two. And they'll just start crying and telling her story. And these are people that don't know her story. Everyone will feel, some people feel nausea, some people feel tingles, some people get grabbed, some people feel choked. All of parts of the story they let feel through you. Um, so very empathic, paranormal. But we also hear things, see things, and sometimes we still hear fights going on and such like that. So there's a lot going on. Zach is less verbal. But he is absolutely there. He's a little handsy sometimes. He remembers his humanness when 
veterans or sexy girls come in. Now, he was uh, a veteran, and many people have projected that he had PTSD. However, uh, everyone in town had PTSD after Katrina, too, so that would be a double whammy. Uh, it was undiagnosed and untreated, but self-soothed, so there were recreational drugs and a lot of liquor involved with this story, too. People thought that maybe they could get over the darkness with those things, but it didn't work. Not for Zach and Abby, and not for a lot of people in New Orleans. Tell us about some of the other ghosts that are that are in the place. Tell us a little bit specifically about the uh, the haunted doll room. Well, there's a little boy by the name of Abe. He's been seen by 25 years of tenants up there. He's about an eight-year-old child, slave child, that died of yellow fever on premises. Uh, he likes to toss dimes at you, stones at you, and there's a little teeny tiny closet that he absolutely loves. It's like a portal. Abe was very afraid when I first got there. He was a very frightened child. He witnessed the murders firsthand, the murder of Zach, you know, the Zach Jaffe, firsthand. And I got there on the 10-year anniversary of the event, which is a big time for spirit activity anniversaries, and while it was under major construction. Those two things together kind of brought things out of the woodwork, literally. So still now, when tall men are with me on the tour, he'll able be a little bit afraid and reserved because Zach was six foot seven. Uh, so there is sometimes a frightened child, sometimes a regular child that wants to play. His sister, who's a little taller, she loves the dolls. She plays with the tea set. And some of the dolls themselves are haunted. And they came with spirits. So we got a lot of things going on up there, but mainly the children. There's a ghost cat, a ghost horse, a couple of ghost adult women, some protectors that stand in the stairwell, and some other children downstairs like Michael. Michael stays under the seance table where we do actual seances as well as readings every day. And, yes, you were right. We do honor those in the spiritualist movement, which is very big in New Orleans. And there's my full altar to Marie Laveau in that room. So that room has a lot of different activities. So there's always footsteps and shadows and people being touched and being reached out by things that are, you know, sometimes the spirit wants to talk to one person and not another. Maybe they look like somebody they knew, or maybe they're bloodline connected, or maybe they're just sexy. You know, whatever it may be, different spirits wake up for different reasons. So, you know, it might be a month that this one's more active and then another one's more active. You never know. But Zach and Addie are always there. Mm-hmm. So you've got your book, uh, Bloody Mary's got, books. Bloody Mary's, you got two books, right? Well, I got a, well, I've got my older books, which are my ghost photo paranormal books, the paranormal blue book. And then I've got the haunting tires and dancing with the dead, which is all about the, you know, the ghost, the ghost experiences and paranormal experiences with me in New Orleans. And I just came out with one with a photographer from LA called Voodoo Conjure and Sacrifice which is really just about voodoo, and it's a coffee table book with some fantastic photos from Jeff Howard in L.A. And now I'm reworking on my Swamp Monsters, Swamp Magic book, and I have, I'm in the process of debating whether I am going to extend the Zach and Addy to be my entire Katrina book or just leave them as a chapter in the new book. I'm at that point right on inside. I picked Since up, I now have two years of, uh, of experience, well, actually, 12 years of experiences with them, but two years of nonstop personal spirit growth experience with them in the building. 
She has grown a lot, by the way, as well as, I know it, it sounds odd, but the Me Too movement, the Me Too movement has helped the dead as well as the living. Females that felt they didn't have their power, and a lot of those, even after death, were those that were murdered, uh, raped, kidnapped, etc. This has actually released a lot of them, and it and Addie has grown a lot. She wants everyone to know that she was a poet and a dancer, and she was supposed to be someone in this life. This wasn't supposed to happen. And, and of course, that he's got a lot more work to do, a lot more karma to deal with. But he's growing. I think that if they do some help while they're on the other side, whether it's helping others that are dealing with PTSD or dealing with suicide or, or you know issues like that, if they can help others, it helps grow their soul. And I've had a lot of women that were married to vets and a lot of vets come in who feel that they've actually kind of got a release or understanding because of the story. So their story has helped others. You know, it's creepy, I guess, to a lot of people that they can feel what went on in that kitchen. Some people can't even walk in the bathroom. Some people are amazed that they will be having entire conversations with the refrigerator with a pair of dowsing rods and not understand why, because I do not tell the story until after the people have had a chance to feel on their own without being told what to feel and where to look for it. So we have blind parents. I'd say at this point, half the people know the story and half don't, because I don't focus on the story on the advertisement on the outside of the place. Um, uh, it, it comes up after, obviously, because it is an important part of the history of that building. Yeah, and I, I can vouch for that, because I remember we uh, we took a tour, one of the several thousand tours, it seems like, that go on around New Orleans at nighttime, and, and a tour guy had mentioned the story uh, it was just one of many stories of the tour, but he, he had mentioned that the actual house where it happened was now a museum. And that's what he, all he said. He didn't mention the name of the museum, none of that. And then when we went there, I, I kind of put two and two together. And then, you know, cause I remember him saying the stove and refrigerator are still there. And then when we went up there, I'm like, I bet this is it. And then when we got down in with the tour and we were all sitting around, uh, and you started telling, started telling stories, that's when it came up. So, um, yeah, I was, Well, there are uh, people that know the story that as soon as I say it, they go, oh, my God, I know this, but I didn't know it was here. And there's other people that came because they know it was there. But I like the fact that I had, at a, well, that people came in, they didn't know. You know, the blind part of it, for them to feel and report the same things paranormally as the people that do know the story is a fascinating way to do the experiment. Uh, there are some people that, you know, said, oh, it's terrible to exploit this and blah, blah, blah. It's just one of the stories, and so many people tell the story in town, and inaccurately. Um, again, that whole point of saying the man was a cannibal. He did cook his girlfriend, but he did not eat her. There was an autopsy that was done. No human remains were in his stomach. So for those shows and those, you know, blogs and podcasts that like to say he was a cannibal, that's not true. It was still a horrific crime. Um, and PTSD is no excuse for murder. What do you? But it was a dark time. It was a dark time for everyone, and he snapped, and he snapped her neck with bees, being such a tall man, and then went mad up there for 13 days while he slow-cooked her. And there were letters and writings and spray painting on the wall, literally, 
that are still behind a thin veneer of gray paint that are embedded with what Turok Tormek, he was going through after, but none of that, of course, uh, compared to what poor Addy had to go through. Well, I would highly advise anybody that's in New Orleans to stop by the museum, and you you also do tours uh, of not just a museum, yeah, but around tours, the city. Yeah, ghost tours, ghost hunts, the whole city. I'm the Cemetery Queen. Been doing cemetery tours out here for 25 years, and know lots of spirits personally in there. But we also do regular city tours, and you know, fun things like we. I invented, believe it or not, I invented the haunted pub tour. And we've got all kinds of things, as well as the museum tour. And I've got a fabulous shop, too, that's there. And we do classes, and we do weddings. I do haunted weddings and voodoo weddings, too. And even I did a zombie wedding over Halloween. So, you know, different types. I don't trade. Yeah, the museum has a ghost photo gallery. It has history. It has stories. It has my haunted collection, uh, which you might have seen me with on a lot of TV shows and such. And I... The collection is constantly added to. Right now I have Chris Moon um, Ghost Box collection, which is the very first Frank's box ever made, and I think number five and number six in my techie corner. And he comes sometimes and does things, so little classes and stuff, as a lot of people do. But the the uh, seances are really good. We do Victorian seances to connect with your spirit as well as the spirits of play. I know uh, uh, you've had all the big guys there. Uh, tell, uh, not tell, all of them. Tell, well, most of them. Tell, tell me a little bit about uh, the guys from Ghost Adventures. Um, I know well, you Ghost said. Go ahead. Has been in my private home. They did a. We did a 2012 episode, 2011, I think, episode here in New Orleans that I gave them a couple of places, and I was actually surprised they went into my house. So my house is on the America's. It's like the media of haunted houses. So a lot of this stuff in the museum was at one point in my house. Uh, so we have that them here. And then Nick from Ghost Adventures kind of split off and did a show called Paranormal Lockdown. Mm-hmm. He, was the, he was the one that did the lockdown in the haunted museum while it was still under construction when I first got there. So Paranormal Lockdown still has that episode. I think you call it the... A, a, Rampart Street Murder House. And then, of course, I did the BuzzFeed Unsolved guys, who were really cool. I had no idea they were as big and famous as they were, because they certainly didn't act like it. They were very laid back, and they did a show with me in there. And they came to my house, too. And uh, we're working on a big episode right now, and it's kind of still hush-hush in the museum. And, of course, I've done other episodes in other places in New Orleans and in Louisiana in general. We did uh, Magnolia Plantation, and I did two other shows for Ghost Adventures. I did four altogether for them because I went to his haunted museum, which opened a wee bit after mine last October. Both of us opened, um, well, mine was open at the beginning of October. His, I think, was open at the end. And his is in Las Vegas. So I'm still in touch with them. And then we're, we do all kind of other shows, too. Yeah, you're, you've definitely made the rounds. <laughs> and oh, I've, Well, when they come to New Orleans and they want to know about voodoo, cemeteries, or ghosts, they usually end up with me. I've been doing this long before Paranormal became as popular as it is today for about 24 years. Um, I was with the Voodoo Museum, and I had the haunted slave quarters in the back with my ghost photo gallery and Paranormal um, Parlor and Seance Parlor up until Katrina. 
Then I closed that and kind of did more at my house and pop-up museum kind of stuff until I opened this two years ago. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on Bloody Mary. I thank you so much for this. Tell everybody how they can get in touch with you. Sure. Uh, really easy to remember, BloodyMaryNewOrleans.com is how you get to my website. And I look at the calendar, and you go to, uh, I think it's at uh, Haunted Museum NOLA. You can get in touch with me that way, because Haunted Museum New Orleans on Facebook. You will find all kind of things and updates and many of our parties and events, because I try to do all kind of events. And anytime you come to town, every day, every night we do a ghost hunt, every day we do a sanitary tour, and we do a lot of custom ghost hunts and what I call voodoo paranormal. I mix old school with new school, and that's what I've been teaching for about 24 years. And it's a little bit more personal of approach to dealing with the spirits. So they're not just scientific experiments. They're people. And you help them, and they help you when you work together. And there is still growth you can do on the other side. And I guess no matter what you did, there's still hope. Something to remember. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, guys. If you're anywhere near New Orleans, stop in and take some tours. Buy her book, The, the Bloody Mary's Guide to Hunting Horrors and, and Dancing with the Dead. It's all true stories of New Orleans. It's got all kinds of, of different people in there. And uh, we picked up an autographed copy. You were nice enough to sign it for us. And I, it's completely fascinating. I know you can get that book almost anywhere. I've seen it on Target.com and uh, Amazon, you name it. And of course, I didn't know that. But yeah. Okay. Yeah, and you, can come, and you can come get it for me, and I'll have it signed, or I mail them out, too. And then we have the new book, and then this one I'm doing now, which will have a little bit of Zach and Addy, but much more in a whole other book, I well, you're awesome. Tell me what you, you can't think of New Orleans without thinking of Bloody Mary, so I greatly appreciate Aww. your time. You're very sweet. I hope to meet you again one day soon. You will, I'm sure. Thank you, ma'am. So that was the infamous Bloody Mary from uh, Bloody Mary Tours and the Haunted Museum down in uh, New Orleans. What did you think about the tour that we took of the house? Um, It was really creepy, actually, for me. I felt like when we went upstairs, I felt like there was something present in that room with us. But it was really cool, actually. It was, she had a lot of interesting stuff and a lot of good stories to tell. And um, I don't know. It's, it And it kind of put me, it made me sad to it be there. It was sad. It made me really sad to be there, just to know what happened. I, I don't know. It's just hard to explain. When you're that close to something horrific that happened at that place. What do you think about the fact that we walked right into the bathroom where somebody had been dismembered in the bathtub? Yeah. And in the kitchen is the same stove and same refrigerator. Yeah. That, But even more, like she touched on, for 10 years... Whoever rented that apartment got that same stove and the same Ooh, I don't refrigerator... Even... And probably didn't even know. They probably didn't. And, oh, my God, I would just, I would die, really, seriously. I didn't really think about it till after I went to the bathroom there. I really wasn't even thinking about it. All I know is I had to pee. But then after the fact, I was like, holy crap, what did I just do? Like, it's it's just so freaky, I'm telling you. It really does. It blows your mind. It really does. And, you know, a lot of people, as I was researching this, a lot of people have no clue because there's mm -hmm. nothing 
out there. She doesn't advertise. No, but that's she the doesn't. House. No. And there's nothing out there. So if you're just a tourist mm-hmm. to New Orleans and you don't know anything mm-hmm. about them specifically, you'll walk past that house and have no clue anything happened. Oh, gosh. Yeah. And that's why she was saying that people will come in there that have no clue. They've never heard of Zach and Eddie. And she doesn't mention it, obviously, mm-hmm. until the end after everybody's went through because she wants to see did somebody pick up on something that had no clue what's happened there? Yeah, our friends that were with us, um, she she picked up on a lot of stuff. Yeah. Because we, so. we went upstairs to that apartment and we just sat there in the dark. Mm-hmm. A couple of chairs and we just sat there. And, you know, we went into the uh, the haunted doll room and we saw the little, um, the little uh, closet that the little boy likes to hang out in. Yeah. And it was just, it was a really cool experience. Mm-hmm. It was. It was very cool. And like we said, it was very, very sad that something that terrible happened there. It's really, I don't know. I, I, I just can't imagine. Uh, I just, I don't know. I can't imagine what goes through people's minds when they do the things they do. I mean, you would think who in the world would ever do such a thing. You know, especially when they were in love. And But, you know, I guess your mind does funny things to you. Well, and, and here's the thing. And I glossed over this a little bit. Yeah, they were supposedly in love. But by all accounts, let's look at stuff for what it is. He had some issues. Mm-hmm. He knew he had some issues. Doesn't make it right to kill somebody. Of course not. But he knew he had some issues. He had seen some things, done some things. Um, had already had a little bit of a rough time there, went through the whole Hurricane Katrina thing. Yeah. Well, then she, on the other hand, apparently had issues too. A lot of drugs involved in both of them, a lot of drinking involved, a lot of arguing. And, you know, she apparently had a really bad temper, and she loved to get handsy, I guess, with the guys that she ever dated. Yeah. So she was one of these... Uh, women that didn't have a problem hitting a guy or that sort of, and would throw the first punch and stuff. Now, obviously, I don't know her. I'm just going by several different accounts from even her friends that said uh-huh. that's kind of the way she was. <clears throat> Doesn't make it right. I'm not saying that by any means, so I don't want anybody to, to take it that way. I'm just saying they're not the Romeo and Juliet that you would picture. They yeah. were, you know, they had a lifestyle that, as I said earlier, I kind of touched on that. They thrived in the Hurricane Katrina thing. So, you know, maybe they didn't really have a lifestyle with all the drinking and drugs and tempers that could be sustained for very long. Anyway, those relationships typically just don't last. Mm -hmm. They don't always end up in murder. But unfortunately, sometimes they do. But I think during the time where they were like rebels and living, you know, like you would in the Wild West, when, you know, I think that was more their lifestyle. And then they probably had a hard time adjusting to it getting back to normal. Right. You know, when you get used to, I'm making all the rules, to now i got to go back to following rules, mm-hmm. that could be tough for some people. Yeah. So, that's just my thoughts. So, let's, uh, I'm going to read some iTunes reviews and, and the uh, Patreons from last week and this week that we missed out on. And then we're going to tell you another story that, if that's not tragic enough, this next one will kind of blow your mind. Mm. And on how it's connected. So, some iTunes reviews. Aaliyah 428, Noel Couture, N. Hager 0529, Shelby Lash, King Fluffy, Lee Froggy, Electric Eye, Courtney 1000, Lola Red 1, Shadow Tech, Taylor Thompson, Riley James, and Beetle 182. Yeah. 
Yeah. Thank you guys so much for those reviews. Again, we sincerely apologize that we left those out last week. We, <laughs> It was almost it was not funny, but I called Jerry on the way to work. I'm like, guess what we didn't do? And he goes, we didn't do the iTunes. And <laughs> it's like we both knew it. And we're like, oh, my gosh. But we apologize about that. And we really do appreciate y'all's review. It means a lot to us. Absolutely. New Patreons. Leonie, I hope I didn't mispronounce that. Leonie Alexander, Lisa Fidel from Michigan. We got to meet uh, Lisa at the uh, show in, in Cincinnati. Okay. Megan Arbuckle, Jennifer DeLeon, Ken Milligan, Travis Renantri. I think that. I think it's Renante, I think. So if I butchered that, sorry. Jennifer Camarotti, Sheila Perkins, and Sherry Stafford, thank you guys for your support. We greatly appreciate it. Oh, gosh. Thank you guys so, so much. You guys don't realize this, but your support is what helps us do these live shows. Mm -hmm. We typically don't really make any money off the live shows. We cover enough to cover the expenses to getting to from equipment that we use at it and stuff like that. So when we use this money that you guys help support us to do stuff like Houston, where we can get out to see further trips and Kansas and stuff like that. So yeah, we appreciate it, y'all. Yeah. It means a ton to us Sure does, honey. to be able to do those things. So we try to give back to you as much as possible. All right. So here's the story I was promising you. So in 2012, a documentary called Zach and Addie was released by uh, a gentleman by the name of Rob Florence. Now, this movie chronicled most of, you know, what we talked about tonight, maybe a little more detailed. And I have not seen the documentary myself, so I'm not going to pretend that I have. But I do know that Rob Florence had a chance meeting with a young lady by the name of Margaret Sanchez, who was, according to her, very best friends with Zach and Addie. Now, this was a few years after the murder had happened. So Margaret Sanchez became the narrator for this documentary. Oh, wow. So I That have, had to be hard. Yeah, I have seen some video and stuff like that of, of, yeah. of parts of the documentary with her talking about it. Well, a strange thing happened, though. While Bob Florence began showing his film a little later that year out at uh, some film festivals, some news broke of a similar-style murder to Addie Hall's in the area. No way. Part of a torso or parts of a torso, I should say, from a Bourbon Street dancer washed up on a Mississippi beach. She had been stabbed and dismembered. Jaron Lockhart, 22 years old, was last seen leaving her job at the Temptations Gentleman Club. This was early in the morning of June 6, 2012. She was known better by her stage name of Riot. And she said she was going to make rent. And that was a term that a lot of the dancers would use for when they would go for a, um, uh, to private parties to uh-huh. dance for pay. Surveillance cameras show her leaving with a man and a woman. So police released the footage on the news to kind of see if anybody could recognize who these last two people were that was seen with her. Well, one member of the viewing audience said he knew exactly who the woman was. He recognized her. It was his sister, Margaret Sanchez. Oh. The same Margaret Sanchez who was in the uh, film and friends Uh, with Zach and Addie. She was picked up by police along with her boyfriend, Terry Christopher Speaks. 
Now, Terry Speaks was going by an alias of Alan Rice. He had assumed another person's identity through some kind of fraudulent means. And Margaret even said that they were boyfriend and girlfriend, but she considered him more her husband. But she didn't know what to think anymore because this wasn't even his real name, so she didn't even know his real name. They were both arrested during a traffic stop on June 12, 2012. Sanchez was booked for harboring a fugitive because Speaks was a convicted sex offender from North Carolina and had violated his parole there, mainly by moving to New Orleans and not reporting that he was a sex offender. During the interview with police, Sanchez told, told them that she was aware that there was a dancer who had been all over the news that had been killed, but she had no clue who that dancer was. She said that it was similar to the death and dismemberment of her friend, Addie Hall. Well, several Bourbon Street workers claimed that, in fact, she did know Jaron Lockhart. There was a bunch of people that said they all knew each other. So she finally admitted to meeting a girl at Temptations, and this girl was wanting crystal meth, so she took her next door to Stilettos, another bar, and introduced her to a dancer named Twacker Tracy. You made that up. I did not. Twacker? Twacker Tracy. (laughs) And her her boyfriend was a meth dealer, and she introduced her, and she said that's pretty much where she left her. And uh, she couldn't tell you anything about her, what she looked like, whether she was fat, tall, skinny, Mm -hmm. what kind of hair she had, nothing. She said they parted ways there, and she had to go home because she was deathly sick from eating bad shrimp. Ooh. And she even went on to say, and I didn't cover all this, but she went on to say that her and her boyfriend were at the house because he was cleaning up puke and defecation from all over the floor where she was that sick. Well, that's gross. Yeah, that's gross. And a good well boyfriend or whatever he was. Yeah, yeah he's a real good boyfriend. <laughs> as, as he randomly helps kill somebody and dismember them. So surveillance cameras all over Bourbon Street showed that this wasn't the case, that they left together. Margaret Sanchez ended up pleading guilty to manslaughter on June 20th in the death and dismemberment of Jaron Lockhart. She also pleaded guilty to obstruction of justice. She was sentenced to 40 years in prison for the manslaughter and 20 years for the obstruction. Speaks was found guilty of second-degree murder, obstruction of justice, and conspiracy to commit obstruction and justice in June of 2015. He briefly fired his attorneys and decided to represent himself. Mm, that's a smart move. Yeah, he got life in prison. So, <laughs> well, hey, he didn't get the electric chair, so he did pretty good. But anyways, that's the story. So this woman is friends with Zach and Addie. She knows all this happens. Mm-hmm. And then within six years later, after doing this documentary <laughs> and and convincing this guy to do the documentary, that she pretty much was the driving force and you should do this. And he does the documentary. He puts her on the documentary talking about how horrible this is. And then her and her boyfriend pretty much lure a girl out of the bar by telling her they're going to pay her to come dance at a private party. And to be honest with you, I didn't see really anything that told what happened after that. Right. All I know is they stabbed this girl with something four inches deep in the heart and dismembered her and threw her body into the ocean or the gulf i guess which then washed up on the mississippi beach the next day so how about that for a weird turn of events yeah she got a little bit too into her story so i mean 
what could be the situation? Is there, could there be some type of an evil entity that went straight from them, Zach and Addie, to her? I mean, this was, you know, years later. I think this happened in 2012. Zach and Addie was 2006. There was a six-year difference in this. It wouldn't like it happened just, you know, right afterwards. But, you know, is it just a mental situation where she was so consumed at what happened that... I don't know. You almost wish it was some kind of entity because it's hard to fathom that a regular human could think to do such heinous things to another person. I think my feet stink. Do you smell my feet? No, I do not. Oh. You smell something. So... Yeah. Anyway, that's a terrible story. It's it, it's hard to know. It's like that's just what I was saying. Maybe she was so into that story on Zach and Addie that it just obsessed her mind. Or I something. mean, and that's kind of what I think too. I think it just became something that obsessed her to the point where she was like, "I just want to try it." Why in the hell? I mean, that's pe- hard work trying to chop up somebody. Uh, I would think. Think about th- think about this, and this is not a a good thing to think about, but it's real. There's not a person alive that's not capable of doing something like this. Oh, I know. You might not. And that's when you think about people that have uh, some mental issues. That just little bit off is enough to say, oh, I think I'd be cool to try. As opposed to, oh, God, why would you try that? Mm -hmm. Why would you? I mean, I know this is going to sound very demented. And I used to think like this as a kid. And I'm serious. I know this is really this is going to have people questioning my sanity. But it was just more of a can and cannot thing more than that. But I can remember being like 12 or 13 years old and waking up one night and saying, you know, I could get up right now while everybody's asleep and grab a knife and stab somebody in the house and kill them. Jesus. Well, I mean, it wasn't from the point that I wanted to do that or felt like, I, but I'm, I'm just saying that it was, I guess it was my way of thinking that people can just really do what they want. And I'm surprised there's not way more mm-hmm. crime than what there is, you know? So do I need to sleep downstairs from now on? <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? No, I understand it's, that. It's not a, it's, I've never had an instinct to want to kill something or no, kill somebody yeah. or anything. And then just thankful. <laughs> but I'm just saying though, we all have that ability to just, what keeps, the, uh, what keeps a person from just killing people on a regular basis. It's just the way our minds are programmed to work. But unfortunately, some people's minds aren't programmed to work that way. Yeah. Some people have no conscience. Some people have no, you know, remorse. It's just, it's amazing. So anyway, this was a very disturbing story. I hope you enjoyed the story uh, without, you know, we try not to get, unlike true crime shows where you get into every detail and it's yeah. hard to get away from. We try to stay away from some of them. We tell you enough to get now that was enough to get into it without, you know, yeah. destroying your whole night. Gonna have to go watch some Rudolph or something now. <laughs> Bake some cookies or something. But we love mm-hmm. you guys and we hope you enjoyed this one and uh, we'll talk to you soon. We love you guys. Sorry about my man voice. <laughs> have a good weekend. <laughs>